This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. As I indicated in last night's lecture, the most obvious response to the challenge posed by Platonism to divine aseity is to advocate a sort of modified Platonism, according to which abstract objects are not uncreated, but rather are created by God. Such a view has been called absolute creation by Thomas Morris and Christopher Menzel, whose seminal article, Absolute Creation, in 1986 sparked the contemporary debate among Christian philosophers over God and abstract objects. Unfortunately, their paper tended to conflate a modified Platonism, according to which abstract objects exist and are caused by God's intellective activity, and a sort of divine conceptualism, according to which objects usually taken to be abstract are really thoughts in God's mind. I shall keep these two views distinct. Let's look first, then, at absolute creationism. Two main problems arise for absolute creationism. The first, troublesome, and the second, truly serious. The first problem is that absolute creationism's modified Platonism is theologically objectionable because it misconstrues either the scope or the nature of creation. This problem arises because of two features of many abstract objects, their eternality and their necessity. The eternality and necessity of abstract objects will force significant revisions in the traditional doctrine of creation. A biblical doctrine of creation assigns all created things to the realm of temporal becoming and implies a temporal origin to the existence of created things. If then we think of abstract objects as ontologically dependent on God, but not properly speaking as created by God, then the scope of divine creation becomes infinitesimal. The abstract realm dwarfs the concrete realm in its incomprehensible plenitude. Hence, scarcely anything, relatively speaking, is created by God. Most of reality is merely sustained in being by God, but not, properly speaking, created by God. But, as we've seen, the biblical writers bear witness to the truth that God, through Christ, has created all other things than Himself. If, on the other hand, we expand the meaning of creation so as to comprise eternal ontological dependence as well as temporal origin of existence, then we subvert God's freedom with respect to creation. God is free with respect to the creation of the concrete realm of objects alone. The vast majority of beings flow from Him with an inexorable necessity independent of His will. Thus, conceptualist Greg Welty seems to be justified in charging that Morris and Menzel have traded in a biblical doctrine of creation for Neoplatonic emanationism with respect to the realm of abstract objects, which is, as I say, nearly all of the created order. In sum, the ontology of theistic Platonism is incompatible with the doctrine of creation, attenuating either God's freedom or the scope of creation. The second, more serious difficulty with absolute creationism is that absolute creation seems to be viciously circular. In the literature, this is known as the bootstrapping objection, after the famous Baron von Munchausen who tried to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. The problem can be most clearly seen with respect to the creation of properties. According to absolute creationism, God has created all properties. But in order to create properties, God would already have to possess certain properties. For example, 
in order to create the property being powerful, God would already have to be powerful. Thus God would already have to possess a property in order to create it, which is viciously circular. Now Morris and Menzel are acutely aware that absolute creation appears to involve what they call the ultimate act of bootstrapping, namely God must be the creator of his own properties and hence of his own nature. They reject any appeal to purely negative theology or to divine simplicity to escape the problem because such doctrines encounter uh, insuperable obstacles which Morris addresses elsewhere. Instead, they boldly assert that it is unproblematic that God create his own essential properties. Their essential point is that there is no objectionable circularity in maintaining that while God stands in a relation of logical dependence on his essential properties, they stand to him in a relation of causal ontological dependence. Morris and Menzel maintain that God is ontologically or causally prior to his nature, even though it is true that were his nature not to exist, God would not exist. There is no vicious circularity because the dependence relations are different. It does not follow that because God's nature depends causally on God and God depends logically on his nature, therefore God depends causally on himself. Unfortunately, the vicious circularity which Morris and Menzel seek to elude is not, I think, the circularity alleged by most proponents of the bootstrapping objection. Morris and Menzel want to show in effect that while God causes his properties, his properties do not cause God, therefore God does not cause himself. By contrast, the vicious circularity alleged by the detractor of absolute creationism is, I think, quite different. The vicious circle alleged by bootstrapping objectors is not that God creates himself, but that properties, for example, must already exist prior to God's creation of them, which is incoherent. Prior to God's creating properties, there should be no properties, in which case, it is alleged, some of the causal conditions for the creation of properties are missing. This is the vicious circularity that absolute creationism seems to involve. Morris and Menzel say nothing to defeat the charge that explanatorily prior to creating certain properties, God must already have those very properties in order to create them, which is incoherent. The priority at issue in the bootstrapping objection is throughout a sort of causal priority, which Menzel recognizes to be asymmetric. According to Menzel, and I quote, A is causally dependent on B if and only if, crudely, B has caused it to be the case that A exists. This admittedly crude characterization might be plausibly nuanced in such a way that the causal prerequisites of A are also causally prior to A. In absolute creation, God's creation of properties is causally prior to the existence of properties. But among the causal prerequisites of God's creating properties is God's having certain properties, and hence the existence of properties. Thus the problem with absolute creationism is that causally prior to God's creating properties, the causal prerequisites for his creating properties are missing so that he cannot create properties. One could put the difficulty by saying that the existence of properties would have to be causally prior to the existence of properties, which is viciously circular. So the bootstrapping worry arises not from confusion about logical priority, 
but from a pretty intuitive notion of the causal prerequisites for some action. What is at stake in the bootstrapping objection is what my colleague J.P. Moreland calls one's ontological assay of things. Platonism offers an ontological assay of things in terms of substances and properties which are exemplified by those substances. Logically prior to their exemplification of properties, substances either are mere bare particulars or simply do not exist. Since absolute creationists accept the ontological assay offered by Platonism, they are immediately confronted with a severe bootstrapping problem. Since logically prior to his creation of properties, God is either a featureless particular or non-existent. In either case, he is impotent to create properties. In order to create any properties, God must already have properties, which is incoherent. It seems to me, therefore, that absolute creationism, while at first blush an easy and obvious solution to the challenge posed by Platonism to divine aseity, proves upon examination to be a dubious doctrine. Absolute creationism is, however, not the historic Christian position. Rather, as we have seen, the church fathers, if not the biblical writers themselves, embraced a different solution, divine conceptualism. This view also dominated medieval thought and receded only with the advent of modernity. Like absolute creationism, divine conceptualism is a realist view of mathematical objects, but it is a concrete realism. That is to say, it takes mathematical objects and other allegedly abstract entities to be in fact concrete objects, namely thoughts in God's mind. As figure one displays, there are other versions of concrete realism on offer, but these were subjected to such withering criticism by Gottlob Frege in the 19th century that such views are scarcely taken seriously today. Frege's objections to psychologism, which takes mathematical objects to be thoughts in human minds, do not, however, touch divine conceptualism. The necessity, plenitude, and intersubjectivity of mathematical objects may be impossible to square with psychologism, but they constitute no obstacle to identifying such objects with thoughts of God. That Frege could simply overlook what has historically been the mainstream theistic position with respect to putative abstract objects is testimony to how utterly detached 19th century philosophical thinking had become from the historic Christian tradition. With the late 20th century renaissance of Christian philosophy, divine conceptualism is once again finding articulate defenders. For example, Alvin Plantinga, the most influential theist philosopher writing today, has lately endorsed divine conceptualism. Unfortunately, Plantinga's endorsement amounts to little more than a nod in the direction of conceptualism. But a fuller development of a conceptualist viewpoint is to be found in Greg Welty's defense of what he calls theistic conceptual realism concerning propositions and possible worlds. The key to Welty's case for conceptualist realism over against Platonic realism, as well as other non-Platonic realisms, is the intentionality, with a T this time, of propositions and possible worlds. Intentionality is the property of being about something or of something. It signifies the object-directedness of something. Our thoughts, for example, have intentionality. 
Welty draws our attention to two characteristics of thought's intentionality, and I quote, Thoughts have intentionality, which is to say they exhibit the two characteristics of directedness and aspectual shape. Directedness is the apparently relational structure of intentionality, due to the fact that every intentional state is about something else. A thought is always a thought of something. Aspectual shape denotes the perspectival or fine-grained structure of intentionality. Objects of intentional states are always apprehended in a certain way. So, for instance, my thought that Lewis Carroll authored Alice in Wonderland is not only about Lewis Carroll, but also picks him out in a certain way, namely as Lewis Carroll, the bearer of that name. Thus it would not be correct to report my thought as being that Charles Dodgson uh, authored Alice in Wonderland. Welty argues that propositions also exhibit intentionality. For only if propositions are about the world can they be true or false, or believed or disbelieved. But Welty observes the following difference between our thought's intentionality and the, and the intentionality exhibited by abstract propositions. Our thoughts are intrinsically intentional. We think about things or of things. By contrast, abstract objects are not intrinsically intentional. They have at best extrinsic or derivative intentionality by being the objects of doxastic attitudes, by uh, being believed. In virtue of acquaintance with our own thoughts, we are already committed to the reality of thoughts. So, if propositions can be taken just to be thoughts rather than abstract objects, we shall have a more economical or parsimonious ontology as a result, and therefore, Welty thinks, a theory which is more likely to be true, similarly for possible worlds. Having argued that conceptualism is the best form of realism about propositions and possible worlds, Welty proceeds to argue that propositions and possible worlds are to be identified with divine thoughts of various sorts. Once we have God's thoughts, abstract objects like propositions and possible worlds become superfluous. So, on Welty's view, propositions and possible worlds are not abstract objects, but rather are concrete entities, namely divine thoughts of various sorts. By denying the existence of uncreated abstract objects, Welty would preserve divine aseity. What about the bootstrapping problem? Divine conceptualism can avoid the bootstrapping problem, it seems to me, since properties are neither subsistent objects in the world, nor constituents in things, but rather thoughts in God's mind. Thus, logically prior to God's conceiving them, there are no properties. That does not imply that apart from God's conceptions, there are no wise men and no brown dogs, but just no wisdom and no brownness. Thus the conceptualist should insist that it is false that in order to conceive a property, F, God must have the property being able to conceive a property. To be sure, in order to conceive F, God must be able to conceive a property, but he need not have the property being able to conceive a property in order to be able to conceive a property. If the theist feels the force of arguments for realism about mathematical objects, propositions, and so on, conceptualism would seem therefore to be a more attractive option than absolute creationism. Still, 
conceptualism is not entirely worry-free. For the question remains whether various objects normally taken to be abstract can plausibly be construed as concrete objects, namely divine thoughts. Take propositions, for example. Conceptualism requires that God be constantly entertaining actual thoughts corresponding to every proposition and every state of affairs. But this seems problematic. Graham Oppie complains that, quote, it would threaten to lead to the attribution to God of inappropriate thoughts, bawdy thoughts, banal thoughts, malicious thoughts, silly thoughts, and so forth. Welty treats this concern somewhat dismissively. He responds, and I quote, an omniscient God has knowledge of the full range of thoughts that we humans can have and will have. We don't surprise him by our bawdy thoughts, banal thoughts, malicious thoughts, silly thoughts, and so on. His holiness is assured as he doesn't intend these thoughts as we intend them. He is like the parent who already knows all the ways the child can go astray. This response fails to do justice to the objection. The problem, as I understand it, is not that we surprise God by our inappropriate thoughts. Rather, the problem is that if God has the full range of thoughts that we do, then he must imagine himself, as well as everyone else, to be engaged in bawdy and malicious acts. Moreover, rather than putting such detestable thoughts immediately out of mind as we try to do, he keeps on thinking about them. Of course, God does not intend to do these things. Nevertheless, he thinks about them constantly, which does seem to impugn his holiness. What about banal and silly thoughts? Why in the world should we think that God is constantly thinking the non-denumerable infinity of banal and silly propositions or states of affairs that there are? Take Welty's own illustration of the thought that for any real number r, r is distinct from the Taj Mahal. Why would God hold such inanities constantly in consciousness? Or consider false propositions like for any real number r, r is identical to the Taj Mahal. Why would God keep such a silly thought constantly in consciousness, knowing it to be false? Obviously, the concern is not that God would be incapable of keeping such a non-denumerable infinity of thoughts ever in consciousness, but rather why he would dwell on such trivialities. Now, I fully appreciate that God must have a conscious life much different than ours. Still, the proliferation in God's conscious thought of the silly and banal beliefs necessary for divine conceptualism seems pointless and makes conceptualism a less attractive option. Another difficulty is that what Welty calls the aspectual shape of a thought does not always correspond to the aspectual shape of the proposition expressed by that thought. God's thoughts, as thoughts of a personal agent, have an aspectual shape that is uniquely his and is plausibly different from their uh, propositional content. But if we say that propositions just are God's thoughts, we are no longer able to distinguish between the aspectual shape of a proposition and the aspectual shape of a divine thought having that propositional content. A first-person divine thought, like, I am the God of Israel, is then a proposition. Since God has first-person thoughts, identifying God's thoughts with propositions commits us to the existence of purely private propositions, which are incommunicable by God and unknowable to us. At most, we could grasp a proposition like, Yahweh is the God of Israel. But that is not the same proposition as, I am the God of Israel. 
Indeed, God may never entertain the oblique thought that Yahweh is the God of Israel, so that there is no such proposition. First-person beliefs are just the proverbial camel's nose. Paraphrastic strategies for dealing with unwanted ontological commitments, including commitment to abstract objects, major on distinguishing propositional content from the way it comes to expression in our thoughts and language. To take a simple example, the thought that the number of people killed in the attack was 66, and the thought 66 people were killed in the attack have, on the customary criterion of ontological commitment, different ontological commitments. The former commits us to the reality of the number 66, whereas the latter, using the numerical term adjectivally rather than substantively, lacks such a commitment. So, which one is God's thought? If God thinks both, what are his ontological commitments? The ontological commitments of the former cannot be annulled by paraphrasing it as the latter, for the paraphrase cannot be said to give the propositional content of the thought, since according to conceptualism, both divine thoughts just are propositions. Suppose Charles Shihara and Jeffrey Hellman are correct that the commitment to mathematical objects in the thought 2 plus 2 equals 4 can be successfully paraphrased away. And suppose that God thinks 2 plus 2 equals 4. Then we are stuck with mathematical objects regardless of the success of the paraphrases. The conceptualists might welcome commitment to mathematical objects, but this same approach will wind, us, wind up committing us to things like holes, lacks, Wednesdays, and other unwanted commitments of ordinary language if God has indeed, in Welty's words, the full range of thoughts that we humans have and uh, will have. In short, distinguishing between the aspectual shape of a proposition and the aspectual shape of thoughts expressing it, as first-person thoughts almost uh, force us to do, is a Trojan horse for conceptualism, raising all sorts of difficulties that make conceptualism much less attractive than it at first appears. Thoughts may not be well suited to be identified with propositions and possible worlds after all. We've been reflecting on the problem posed by identifying propositions with God's thoughts. What about properties? The main reason for construing properties as abstract universals rather than as particulars is the need for an entity that can be wholly located in diverse places. The difficulty then for conceptualism is that God's thoughts as concrete objects are not universals, but particulars, and so cannot be wholly present in spatially separated objects. Well, could the conceptualists say of divine thoughts what the Platonist says of abstract universals? Particulars stand in some sort of relation to God's thoughts in virtue of which particulars are the way they are. An immediate problem for the conceptualist is that if properties are God's thoughts, then particulars must exemplify God's thoughts. But a concrete object does not seem to be the sort of thing that is exemplifiable, any more than it can be a universal, since concrete objects are particulars, and particulars are not exemplifiable, but rather exemplify. Accordingly, God's thoughts cannot be properties. But perhaps the conceptualist could say that divine thoughts can play the role of properties. In substituting God's thoughts for properties, Plantinga has suggested that particulars stand to God's thoughts in a relation analogous to exemplification. He appeals 
to Frege's notion of falling under a concept as the relation in which particulars stand to God's thoughts. Thus, all brown things fall under God's thought of brown. Things which are brown resemble each other in virtue of falling under the same concept. Intriguing as this suggestion is, however, it is problematic. In the first place, concepts are not plausibly construed as concrete objects, for they are shared by multiple thinkers in a way that thoughts are not. Concepts seem to be part of the content of our thoughts. As such, they are plausibly abstract objects if they exist at all. Moreover, as mental states, thoughts are characterized by intentionality, being about things, not by things falling under them. My thought of redness is about redness. It is not itself redness, nor do red things fall under it. This problem can be generalized. God's thought of the number two is about two, but then his thought is not two, but something distinct from two. Two is what he is thinking about, but he is not thinking about his thought. He is thinking about two. Therefore, his thought cannot be two. Furthermore, substituting the notion of falling under a concept for exemplifying a property seems to get the explanatory order backwards. Things are not brown because they fall under God's concept brown in the way that things are brown because they exemplify brownness. Rather, they fall under God's concept brown because they are brown. Thus, the relation of falling under a concept cannot do the work of exemplification. If this is right, then the conceptualist who wants God's thoughts to play the role of properties still has plenty of work cut out for him if his view is to commend itself as an attractive option for theists. <clears throat> Finally, consider mathematical sets. Plantinga suggests that sets be taken to be God's mental collectings. But this raises a problem. If sets are really particular divine thoughts, then how do we have any access to sets? The question here is not whether I can have a causal connection with sets. Rather, it is that sets, the real sets, are locked away in God's private consciousness, so that what we talk and work with are not sets at all. When I collect into a unity all of the pens on my desk, that set of pens is not identical, it seems, with the set constituted by God's collecting activity. Since we have two collectings, and since sets are God's particular collectings, the set I form is not identical to the set of all the pens on my desk. But if sets are determined by membership, how could they not be identical? since they have the same members. In short, all sorts of worries arise when we reflect upon the conceptualist identification of objects typically taken to be abstract with God's thoughts. While by no means knock down objections to conceptualism, indeed I think that conceptualism remains one option for the theist wrestling with the challenge posed by abstract objects to divine aseity, these worries should motivate the theist to look seriously at what other options are available before acquiescing too readily and too easily to the traditional conceptualist viewpoint. The foregoing all serves to place a question mark behind realism about abstract objects. Why be a realist in the first place? Perhaps absolute creationists and divine conceptualists have been much too uncritical in their acceptance of the indispensability argument for realism about mathematical objects and their ilk. Perhaps Christian theists need to take a good look 
at anti-realist alternatives to Platonism. We have, we have time for some questions. Anyone has questions? Uh, thank you very much for, for your, your lecture. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, quick question for you, though. Um, so if one thought that something like the uh, Felix Schneider reference just didn't work or something like that, and, and uh, nonetheless, um, one thought that maybe it will take some good from divine conceptualism, maybe it sort of captures uh, particular propositions, such as necessary propositions like the laws of logic, Greg Welty's view, thinking particularly the Hordon contradiction paper, the author. Um, but then think, okay, well maybe I see some problems with properties, right, grinding properties, or maybe some thoughts. Yes. <laughs> I don't want God to have, right? Right. Uh, so maybe like a modified theistic activism uh, espoused by like, Gould and, and uh, uh, what one might go there, so sort of combining and maybe perhaps a couple of uh, views. So besides obviously saying, well, hey, you don't have to do all that, you know, deflationary theory or something like that, uh, if one wasn't convinced of sort of deflationary theory sort of models, would you have any sort of other objections toward uh, a particular model I'm just trying to... Yes. Can you bring up the slide that shows all the options? <coughs> I am very much in sympathy with what you seem to be describing as a combinatorial approach to this question. Uh, and I think that is absolutely right. And I'll be drawing on a number of these different theories, especially under the uh, column of anti-realist options, to try to ca craft a response. So you're quite right in saying there doesn't need to be a sort of uniform way of handling these various abstracta. You could handle different ones in different ways, and you might think that uh, propositions of a certain sort could be divine thoughts, but you're not so convinced that's the way to handle properties. Maybe you want to do a fictionalist approach to properties or something instead. And I am very much in sympathy with a combinatorial approach, and I don't really have any other objections than the ones that I've shared this evening. In the print version of this, I develop these in more detail, but this is in outline my worries basically about conceptualism and why I, having initially thought I would be adopting divine conceptualism as my solution to the problem, found myself more and more attracted to the anti-realist alternatives. Um, it seemed to me that there are worries about conceptualism and I think that the arguments for realism are not very good. And so I began to ask, well, gee, why not be an anti-realist about this and to look at those various alternatives? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can remember exactly what you said, but at one point there was an objection to, um, there's an objection to kind of ordinary concrete objects. And, exemplifying or instantiating universals understood as aspects of God's mm -hmm. mind. And I was wondering if you could say something more about what the problem was supposed All to be. All right. Here one enters into the classical debate over nominalism that stretches back through the Middle Ages. Um, and that is, uh, are there, in addition, in addition to particular things, universals um, that these different particular things have in common. For example, all red things uh, share or exemplify the universal redness, and it's identical in, in every red thing, at least of a particular shade. The whole motivation behind postulating universals was to have something that could exist wholly in spatially separated places, because concrete objects don't do that. They cannot exist wholly in spatially separated places. But the idea was you could have a universal like redness, which exists wholly in the fire engine and wholly in the apple and, and so forth. Well, for that very reason, God's thoughts as particulars don't seem to serve the role 
played by properties because his thoughts are not universals, they're particulars. His thoughts are not your thoughts, uh, and they're not Sherry's thoughts or, or David's thoughts. These thoughts are particular mental events in God's mind. And so they don't seem to be the sort of thing that can exist wholly at spatially separated places or which can be exemplified by particulars. On the contrary, they are particulars. So it seems to me that on the face of it, the idea that properties are God's thoughts subverts the whole reason that properties were postulated in the first place to be universals. I guess what I was thinking was that there's no kind of obvious problem behind the idea that one concrete object stands in a certain relation to a variety of other objects yes. that are located at a variety of different places in space and time. And so I was wondering, well, if we thought of whatever exemplification or instantiation is this thing that's supposed to connect God's thoughts to all of the things that instantiate them, why is there a problem there with this instantiation relation, exemplification <coughs> relation holding between God's thoughts and mental Well, let me try to, to run it again. Exemplification is a sort of primitive relation that is supposed to stand between a particular and a universal. That's Platonism, that, that's the whole theory of properties on Platonism, uh, that particulars exemplify universals. And what you are now substituting for that universal is another particular. A particular exemplifies another particular. And I think on Platonist principles that just isn't possible. That, that isn't the sort of, a, a, a relation of exemplification doesn't hold between two particulars it holds between a particular and a universal. Now what Plantinga does, as I say, is say, well, all right, God's thoughts aren't really properties, and particular things don't exemplify God's thoughts, but his thoughts can play the same role that properties do. And instead of exemplification, we'll have this Fragian relation of falling under a concept. So God has the concept of brown, and then these brown things fall under that concept. So uh, you see there is the, the move to try to craft a theory that will deal with the problem that particulars don't stand to each other in exemplification relations, and I offered a criticism of that as well. If you say that particulars can stand in a relation of exemplification to each other, then the whole reason for postulating universals in the first place seems to collapse. And we don't really understand what exemplification is then anymore. Um, so I just wonder if, um, if whether, like what divine ideas or, or thoughts constitute on the view of modern divine conceptualists like wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm thinking, so either they're, they're kind of somehow parts of God, but that seems like a, a strange thing to say. If you don't think they're, they're parts of God, then it, 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 so then it looks like there's something outside of God, which um, is kind of presumably eternally depending on him. But if a divine conceptualist was okay with that, then presumably they could also be okay with some further entity supervening on these not themselves divine, divine ideas. And so I'm wondering if you could, a divine conceptualist, being comfortable with having things which are co-eternal with God, be it dependent on him, could just have kind of, um, sort of properly abstract um, platonic objects supervening on divine thought in some, some such way that a lot of the problems about exemplification and the other things you're bringing out sort of weren't, weren't too bad. Yes, that is, that is I think, well-spoken from an absolute creationist point of view. They, that might be exactly what the absolute creationists would say to the conceptualist. And I do think that there is, a, you, you've pulled a thread here that threatens to undo the, the conceptualist fabric, and that is, are these thoughts actual objects? Are they actual things that exist? Well, if so, God is not identical to his thoughts because God is not a thought, right? So have you really safeguarded divine aseity on conceptualism 
or have you proliferated an infinite number of objects um, that are not God, that are non, they're not identical with God and yet they exist necessarily eternally and so forth. Well the conceptualists would say, but since these are thoughts in God's mind, they are dependent upon God. Uh, his, the thoughts are dependent upon a thinker and I think that's quite correct. Um, and so you have that ontological dependence, but then the absolute creationist will come back and say, but I'm postulating exactly the same sort of ontological dependence upon um, God of these abstract entities. And the difference would be that these abstract entities, and this is very hard to express verbally, these abstract objects somehow exist apart from God. They're not imminent in God. Whereas God's thoughts are imminent in a way that abstract objects are. And I think whether or not you think conceptualism is compatible with divine aseity is going to depend on whether or not you think that imminent things within God can be eternal, necessary, uh, and all the rest, um, so long as they're not things that are quote-unquote outside God or apart from God. And I, I, I share that intuition, I, I think. I, it, it does seem to me there's a huge difference between saying that there are aspects of God or thoughts of God or other things that are imminent to God Himself so that it would make sense to think of God existing alone all by Himself and then there would be these imminent aspects and thoughts and other things in his being, that seems to me to be very different from thinking there are these abstract entities that are apart from God, quote unquote outside God, that are eternal, uncreated, and necessary. So I can, I can share that conceptualist intuition. But it does motivate me further toward an anti-realist point of view and say, well, are thoughts really objects? Are they really things? And I'm inclined to question that and say, no, what you have is a thinker, and he is thinking. But it's, it's a, a hypostatization or a reification to make them into things. When you have a thinker who is thinking, and then you, you reify what he's thinking into a quote-unquote thought and make that a thing. Um, I am inclined that that kind of nominalization is illicit. And again, you can see my anti-realist slip showing um, in what I'm expressing to you right now. Good question, though. It might be a totally confused question. Um, That's all right. This is a very difficult subject. <laughs> so my reading of early theologians and medieval theologians like Aquinas and stuff is that they subscribe to um, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, so the, the challenge uh, is kind of the doctrine is motivated by the challenge of uh, Platonism, um, so that God is His properties. Yes, I, I'm not quite sure how you'd relate that to this <laughs> or whether it is related. Well, this is a question that Professor Nagasawa posed, I believe, last night, and um, I think it's very relevant to the bootstrapping problem, because what you can say is that um, God doesn't create his properties, he just is his properties. God is his omniscience, his omnipotence, his goodness, his eternity, and so forth. And so there isn't anything distinct from God there to be created. Um, and Aquinas was ostensibly a sort of divine conceptualist. He followed Augustine in saying that the Platonic ideas or forms are ideas in the mind of God. But then by means of his simplicity doctrine, he went even further by saying that the idea that there is a plurality of divine ideas is just our conception. We can't conceive of God's simple essence and so we conceive of it as involving a plurality of, of divine ideas, but in reality there is no such plurality. In, in that sense, Aquinas is a sort of anti-realist about abstract objects. He doesn't even believe in a plurality of divine thoughts, much less a plurality of divine 
uh, of abstract objects. And um, while I think that would escape the bootstrapping objection, um, I am inclined to agree with Morris, Thomas Morris, that the doctrine is um, unintelligible as well as poorly motivated theologically and seems to me to be even more difficult and desperate than the problem that we're addressing now. It's trying to solve the obscure by postulating the more obscure, if you know what I mean. So I, I address this in the print version of these lectures, uh, but haven't gone into it because of reasons of time. But you're quite right in seeing that as, as relevant to the last couple of questions that we've had. Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Just a, a, a tiny question about the, um, the banal thought issue. I wonder if the conceptualist, I'm very sympathetic to the other worries of Catholic position, but I wondered if the defender of divine conceptualism could try and get around those sort of worries about would God really be thinking about this all the time? Um, by saying, well, or something like the following, well, um, take any of those thoughts that is kind of maybe uncomfortable or weird to attribute to God. Um, there's going to be a fact about whether that um, thought is uh, possible or not. And so the corresponding thought, either it's possible that P or it's not possible that P, is going to be a truth that an omniscient God will have to know. And so um, the relevant propositions can exist and, as it were, be in the mind of God by only figuring in these modal truths that an omniscient God will know. So they don't have to sit around attributing to God banal, uh, undetached, uncomplex thoughts about, well, I don't know, bodiness. Well, it would seem to me that then these are distinct propositions. Uh, modal propositions are different propositions than de facto propositions. So. If God isn't thinking that he is engaged in a certain body act, but merely thinking it is possible that I could be engaged in this act, that's a different proposition. And the conceptualist needs God to be thinking of all of these things in order to get the full range of modal truths as well as... No, I got it. But if you think of the, the complex propositions as built out of... just Think of it as analogous to sentences in a formal language. So negation phi has phi in it. It's a complex sentence, and an atomic sentence is part of it. So similarly, the modal proposition, it's possible that P, yes. has the proposition that P in it. And hence, if God is thinking the complex proposition, he's there and has that's in his mind, he thereby has the sentence. Well, I, I, don't th I still don't, would, don't think that's going to work because you're identifying a thought with a proposition. And so, in this case, God has the, the, the modal thought, and it is that that will be the only proposition that exists on this view, not the, the sub-constituents of it. Um, so, for example, take something simpler like a conjunction. If God thinks P and Q, it's not enough that P and Q are constituents of that proposition. He's got to think P and he's got to think Q on conceptualism if you're going to get the full range of propositions. And so, again, it seems to me, he's going to have to be thinking these body thoughts. I guess I'm not seeing that, so. Okay, well. If I write P and Q yeah. on the board, I've thereby written P on the board. Mm -hmm. And if I think that P and Q, I've thereby, if, if the thought that P and Q is in my mind, the thought that P is in my mind, think of it in terms of entertainment. Yeah, I guess I don't. If I entertain the content that not P. That's surely not right. Right, though, because if you have a sufficiently complex proposition, you might grasp and think the whole proposition and not its constituent parts. I, it seems to me. Sorry, I'm not a philosopher, so I might ask a very stupid question. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking, is, is, is there not a sense in which the Platonic forms are totally unnecessary and that it's just a congruence of constellations of neurons that have a correspondence mm -hmm. with things that are physical in the world, and that that which we ascribe meaning to is just something that's revealed by orchestration of our, of our physicality, uh -huh. by God's will, but not because it exists per se, but because it's sort of 
And, and what is the, uh, the antecedent of it in that sentence? I didn't catch that at the beginning. The, 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 the meaningfulness that God gives, that God would convey on, onto our physical minds is not something that, that has to exist physically. Yeah. Well, now, the, the question will be, I think, do you think that propositions exist and do you think that thoughts exist? Um, the, the, I, I think the question of meaningfulness and so forth isn't at the heart of the issue here. It, it will be whether or not you think there are propositions that are true or false and whether or not you think there can be thoughts in addition to just neural states or neural firings. Because in God's case, there, is, there are no brain states correlated with his mental states. So you've got pure thinking. You've got pure thoughts without neural states. And the conceptualist wants to identify those mental events with propositions. I just tend to think it's just a correspondence between things that are physical. The, 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 it's just that we haven't uh, encountered such things that, and our propositions are just the correspondence between ment mental, which are physical states. That mental states, states are physical states, oh, you think? I, I, well, I would say that they're, well, no, okay, I admit there's a certain problem. I mean, if you do think that, you see, theism just goes out the window immediately because the whole notion of God is of a thinking, self-conscious person who has no brain states and isn't associated with neural states or material <laughs> substratum. So that would be a deeper objection lodged against theism itself rather than against the problem that we're wrestling with here, which is an in-house debate yeah. among theists. I've got a, a, a rather different question relating to the way in which we have to use language and concepts when we're talking about the bootstrapping problem mm -hmm. and the circularity argument. And if God is the being who invented time, um, can we actually talk of things being before and after prior to that creation of time? It's absolutely critical in understanding the bootstrapping objection that we understand we're not talking about temporal priority. Because you're quite right, there is no temporal priority of God to his properties or the existence of properties. Properties will exist eternally and necessarily. So one is talking here about a sort of explanatory or causal priority. The absolute creationist wants to say that properties exist because God created them or because they're ontologically dependent on God. So he's explanatorily or causally prior to the existence of properties. And the bootstrapping objection arises, it seems to me, from the fact that in that causally or explanatorily prior state, God couldn't create properties unless he already had certain properties. He couldn't create the property being a concrete object unless he already were a concrete object. Um, but then he would have the property of being a concrete object before he created it, which is viciously circular. So it's, it's not a temporal or chronological priority, but an explanatory or causal one. Time for one more question. Okay. Um, Dr. Craig, I'd like to go back um, to an earlier comment about the concepts in God's mind and the discussion yes. about the universals and instantiating uh, particulars. Um, I'm a bit confused because it seems to me if you just think of a simple example of like an artist who has a concept who then, you know, a concept of like a, a unicorn and then like crafts this unicorn out of a, some material, it seems like that material is now exemplifying the concept that was in his mind. Um, isn't that kind of similar to what a divine conceptualist would have in mind? That there's these concepts and that... Yes, although I think maybe the vocabulary you're using isn't quite right. But um, think about that in relation to what I, what I said in response to planning it. When you have the concept of a unicorn, and Professor Nagasawa has the concept of a unicorn, you can share the same concept 
right? You can both think about that same thing, or the number two. You can both think about the number two and discuss its properties. You have the same concept. So that means that a concept is not the same thing as a thought, because a thought is a particular thing. Dr. Nagasawa doesn't have your thought. That's personal and private and particular to you. He has his own thoughts. But both of you have a thought who, which has the same content, the same conceptual content. You are thinking of the same concept. So it seems to me that concepts are abstract objects. Concepts are um, the abstract content that can be grasped by thoughts. And therefore, I think it's not right for Plantinga to identify God's concepts with, um, with properties on conceptualism. He, he should be saying that God's thoughts are, God's, uh, are, are properties or play the role of properties. Um, so, uh, the question then is going to be, when you have uh, an object that you are thinking about, does that object exemplify your thought? Or, uh, and that seems to be wrong because, as I say, particulars don't stand in the relationship of exemplification. That, that doesn't fit the way one normally understands that. And similarly, falling under a concept the problem there is, again, that a concept is an abstract object, and the conceptualist is wanting to get rid of that in favor of thoughts. And the unicorn or whatever doesn't fall under your thought. Thoughts exhibit intentionality. You're thinking about the unicorn, right? And as I said, when you, when you take intentionality seriously, that just immediately implies that your thought of something isn't that thing because you're thinking about or of something else. So your thought isn't a unicorn. The unicorn is the intentional object of your thought. And similarly with the number two and these other abstracta. So it seems to me that these are real worries about conceptualism that conceptualists need to address more explicitly than they have heretofore. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.